Hey guys, welcome to the Bitcoin Fortress podcast, helping you increase your financial freedom. This is episode 32, recorded on September 11th, 2022. This podcast is for entertainment only and is not investing advice. So as always, please, please, please do your own homework. Okay, jumping right in, uh, market update from last week. U.S. stocks rallied on Friday and major indexes snapped a three-week losing streak as investors continue to factor in the expectation for higher interest rates just around the corner. The benchmark index rose in three of the four sessions this week as investors appeared to be bargain hunting following recent weakness in the market triggered by the Federal Reserve's increasingly hawkish remarks. All 11 sectors of the S&P 500 closed in the green for the week, with the consumer discretionary sector standing out as the top gainer. The Dow finished the holiday-shortened week up 2.8%, while the S&P 500 index rose 3.6%, and the NASDAQ shot up 4.2%. The 10-year U.S. Treasury tacked on a 12 basis points during the week to end with a yield of 3.32%. And a little look ahead for next week, look for the CPI inflation report for August to be one of the big talking points in the week ahead. The report is expected to show that prices rose 8.1% in August to a mark second straight uh, month of deceleration, although core CPI is projected to be slightly higher on a month-to-month comparison. The report will drop with uh, Federal Reserve Board members in a blackout period next week ahead of the next FOMC meeting, which is set for September 20th to 21st. Analysts have warned that moderating inflation is unlikely to budge the FOMC from hiking interest rates another 75 points at the meeting due to its hawkish stance. In his last public appearance before the FOMC meeting, Fed President Jerome Powell said the central bank's policy interventions are aimed in part to cause the labor market to get back into better balance and bring wages back down to levels that are more consistent with 2% inflation. Big corporate events next week include highly anticipated investor days for Starbucks and Roblox. So again, everybody's going to drop their pencils, put down their keyboards, and wait to see what a small group of people uh, decide and then they'll figure out how they're going to invest from there. So um, free market capitalism at its best. Okay, getting into the Bitcoin news. Um, First article here is from Bloomberg. Uh, This was uh, posted, I think, September 9th. Uh, And the title here is MicroStrategy says it may buy more Bitcoin in its stock sale filing. MicroStrategy Inc., probably best known as the largest corporate buyer of Bitcoin, filed with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission to sell as much as $500 million in stock. Proceeds may be used to buy more of the cryptocurrency. The Class A shares will be sold through Cowan & Company and BTIG LLC, according to a filing Friday by the enterprise software company. No specific date was provided for any potential sales. 
The firm added that it intends to retain all future earnings, if any, to purchase additional Bitcoin and for the development of the software business. MicroStrategy co-founder Michael Saylor gave up his chief executive officer title in August to increase his advocacy efforts for holding Bitcoin. That was the same day the Tyson's Corner Virginia-based company reported a loss of more than $1 billion related to the second quarter plunge in the price of cryptocurrency. Saylor, who co-founded the company in 1989, continues to serve as the executive chairman. So this is an interesting piece of news since everybody's kind of written off MicroStrategy, uh, not really understanding the company or uh, Mike, Michael Saylor's um, uh, investment strategies. Um, but uh, uh, certainly with Bitcoin down in the, while well, it was uh, down in the 18,000s, uh, but now it's around 21,000, it's certainly... Um, at an interesting price point to accumulate more. So uh, I'm going to say that's bullish. Uh, next article here is from CNBC. This was published on September 8th. And uh, this is uh, spoiler alert, uh, more FUD as it relates to energy. And I'll comment on that uh, after I get through the article here. Crypto mining could hinder U.S. ability to battle climate change, what White House says. Uh, the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy on Thursday warned that cryptocurrency mining operations could hinder the country's ability to mitigate climate change. It also said federal agencies should consider information from crypto miners and local utilities in a privacy-preserving manner to help understand and mitigate the problem. Crypto operations in the U.S. now consume as much energy as all home computers or all residential lighting, the White House said in a report. The findings come amid mounting criticism over the amount of electricity that crypto mining operations produce. I think it, they probably meant to say consume, but anyway, they do produce energy too, and we'll talk about that later. The process of cryptocurrency mining involves running banks of computers to solve complicated math equations in order to create new coins and validate transactions. Bitcoin, the most popular cryptocurrency, is wedded to this proof-of-work system. Although the second most popular currency, Ether, is moving to a different method that may not require as much energy. U.S. crypto production represents between 0.2% and 0.3% of global greenhouse gas emissions and between 0.4% and 0.8% of domestic emissions, respectively, though the estimates are uncertain, the report said. Mining crypto produces planet warming emissions primarily by burning coal, natural gas, and other fossil fuels to generate electricity. This year, crypto mining produced between 110 and 170 million metric tons on carbon pollution across the world and roughly 25 to 50 million metric tons in the U.S. alone. The report said this process produces electricity by purchasing it from the power grid or by producing and disposing of computers and mining infrastructure. Again, they said produces, I think they meant consumes. So this article was poorly written. Electricity usage from digital assets is contributing to greenhouse gas emissions, additional pollution, noise, and other local impacts depending on markets, policies, and local electricity sources, the White House said in the report. Depending on the energy intensity of the technology used, crypto assets could hinder broader efforts to achieve net zero carbon pollution consistent with U.S. climate commitments and goals, it added. 
The report is a result of President Joe Biden's executive order in March that called on the government to examine the risks and benefits of cryptocurrencies. The president has pledged to reduce U.S. emissions from 2005 levels at least in half by 2030 and achieve net zero emissions by 2050. The report said that global crypto mining emissions are greater than the emissions of many individual countries and equivalent to the global emissions from all barges, tankers, and other ships on inland waterways. Additionally, Bitcoin, the world's largest digital currency by market value, generates approximately two-thirds of global crypto greenhouse gas emissions. Well, uh, so first of all, uh, if we set aside the how poorly this article was written, um, uh, as far as it relates to energy, you just kind of need to ask yourself the question. What is a good use of energy? Is securing your money a good use of energy? Answer is yes. So uh, does Bitcoin consume energy? Yes. Uh, can Bitcoin help develop alternative forms of energy? Absolutely. And I've talked about this before, uh, you know, uh, especially with the oil and gas industry, you know, they, a lot of times in oil wells, they have, uh, gas that, uh, they can't capture and, and, uh, pipe to, uh, use, um, elsewhere, you know, like the, uh, natural gas that, that's a byproduct of the, the uh, oil drilling operation. So they flare it, you know, they basically just burn it off and it's very polluting. And what the Bitcoin miners can do is they can move in and, and install remote mining rigs that can capture that gas. They burn it in, uh, in engines that generate power that run um, uh, miners, mining computers. And while that still does cause some pollution, it's way, 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 way less than uh, flaring. Uh, so it uh, generates power. And then, of course, you know, if the miners don't need all the power that's generated, they can, you know, that can always be sold to the grid. Similarly, if you have a, a solar farm or a wind farm and you want to build it in some remote area, uh, attaching Bitcoin mining equipment to that uh, helps helps to uh, accelerate the return on investment, I guess, make it viable, whatever you want to call it. So ironically, Bitcoin mining actually can encourage the development of alternative energy sources. It can, it's also, um, doesn't need to be on all the time. Like they can always power down if there's a if there's a power shortage or whatever. Um, and that's happened, I think, recently in Texas. So uh, to me, the positives outweigh the negatives. And when they throw around these numbers that don't mean anything, I also kind of come back to how does the government think they're going to change the weather? It's really absurd if you think about it. And I don't think the government getting involved is really the right answer. I think that the private market is going to demand electric vehicles, let's say. Um, and there's certainly 
plenty of irony in that in the state of California, where they now have outlawed new internal combustion engine cars from being sold, I think in 2035 or something like that. So you have to buy an electric car. And yet the state's power grid is very unstable. And the state's power grid is in need of additional development. And whether that's alternative nuclear probably would be a good idea, but you know, they were going to shut down the last nuclear power plant uh, until recently. Um, because you need to have stable baseload power in order to uh, supply the grid. Something I've learned in some of the podcasts I've listened to. And unfortunately, with wind and solar, sometimes the wind doesn't blow and sometimes the sun doesn't shine. In fact, just this week, we had a big storm, lots of cloud cover, but it was hot, huge demand on the grid. And then they start texting people about turning down your AC and turning off your lights and stuff like that. It's just ridiculous. Um, so anyway, totally FUD. Uh, and if, uh, pardon my French, it's complete bullshit. Okay. Uh, moving on, Bitcoin.com here, uh, an article posted about a day ago. While Bitcoin's hash rate grew by 22,900% in six years, discovering block rewards is far more difficult. Uh, 334,668 Bitcoin were minted since September 2021. Foundry USA captures the most blocks. Miners accrued just over 334,668 Bitcoin since September 10th, 2021, and 53,547 blocks were found during the past 12 months. Foundry USA has been the top mining pool out of the 28 mining pools that found blocks during the past year. Foundry captured 18.14% of the year's global hash rate average and found 9,716 blocks. Ant Pool was the second largest miner during the past year, capturing 15.31% of the global hash rate. Ant Pool managed to discover 8,198 blocks or 51,237.5 Bitcoin, not including fees uh, in the 12 months. Ant Pool is followed by F2 Pools, 14.79% of the year's hash rate after the pool found 7,919 block rewards. Binance Pool was the year's fourth largest mining pool with 10.72% of the 12-month hash rate average. Binance Pool found 5,738 blocks this past year, which equates to 35, 35 35.862.5, I think 35,862.5 35, 35, Bitcoin, not including fees. Poolin took 10.69% of the global hash rate during the past 12 months, finding 5,724 blocks. Unknown hash or stealth miners represented the 12th largest mining entity with 1.74% of the year's global hash rate after stealth miners found 934 blocks. Now, before I read on, uh, one thing that's quite interesting, well, in addition to the hash rate 
uh, growing and continue to grow, which which is very very uh, good news for the network because it means it's there's plenty of mining going on. There's and the, the network is secure. Uh, while there are some big, um, you know, miners, you know, Foundry with eighteen percent, Ampool with fifteen, F two with fourteen, um, and those three account for almost half, I guess, of the total hash rate. There's still lots of other uh, uh, mine, mining uh, pools, and and uh, of course, you know, independent, you know, people doing it in their in their basement. Um, and every once in a while, one of those people uh, scores a block reward. Um, so I think that's really good, uh, you know, in terms of you know global, if you call it global resilience of of uh, of the network. Uh, annual block reward production was the same in 2016 and 2019, but miners discovered a lot more Bitcoin back then. Things are a whole lot different than they were six years ago from today as the hash rate hit one exahash per second in 2016. 27 pools were mining Bitcoin in 2016 and 55,077 blocks were found that year. The top mining pool in November 2016 was F2 pool with 21.71% of the year's global hash rate after it found 11,958 blocks. F2 pool was followed by Ampool, BTCC, Bitfury, and BW.com, respectively, while the last 12 months has seen an 85.77% hash rate increase. Since 2016, the hash rate has jumped 22,900% higher. While the hash rate is a whole lot bigger than it was six years ago, the difficulty has increased a great deal as well. The number of Bitcoins miners get nowadays is also much smaller. While 334,668.75 Bitcoin was minted this past year during the first six months of 2016, miners found 688,462.5 Bitcoin because the block reward was 25 BTC per block. Moreover, during the latter half of 2016, only 344,231.25 Bitcoin was found, but that's still more than the 334,668 coins minted since last September. During the second half of 2016, miners got 12.5 Bitcoin per block rather than the 6.25 Bitcoin per block reward miners get today and since May of 2020. That's what they call the halving. So every four years, the, the block reward gets cut in half, which um, you know reduces the amount of supply that comes in, which you know helps support the price. In April 2019, 53,522 blocks were found that year, and 669,025 new Bitcoin were minted into circulation. BTC.com was the top miner at the time after finding 10,468 blocks and Ampool was the second largest pool capturing uh, 7,122 blocks in 2019. While unknown hash rate represented 1.74% of the past year's hash power in 2016, stealth miners were virtually non-existent. In April 2019, however, unknown hash rate captured 3.76% of the global hash rate during the 12-month span and found 2013 blocks that year. Despite the fact that miners get a lot fewer Bitcoins per block than they did three years ago or six years ago, the price is higher, creating enough equilibrium to where miners still profit with all the expenditures they put into mining. 
In February 2019, Bitcoin's price was $3,464 per coin, and the U.S. dollar value at the time made it so that only a few mining rigs were profitable. During Bitcoin's February 2019 difficulty metric, the price and the $0.12 cents per kilowatt hour in electricity costs, only three SHA-256 mining rigs were profitable. Uh, so again, overall takeaway is that the um, Bitcoin mining uh, industry is still profitable, uh, relatively diversified, and of course it is global. So if a particular, and this is the beauty of the, and we saw this with China, when China banned mining, all of those miners got boxed up and moved to other jurisdictions that were still friendly to mining, and the hash rate took a took a, a downturn briefly and then um, now is you know back to all-time highs so uh, if a particular jurisdiction like even the US you know if they're serious and want to ban mining or whatever uh, which would be unfortunate and of course I think the states would have something to say about that if the federal government were to try to do something along those lines like Texas or Wyoming or some of the states that have, you know been more pro crypto pro Bitcoin. Uh, there's somewhere else in the world that's going to be more than happy to mine that Bitcoin and earn those coins. And of course, when there's a dip in the hash rate, the difficulty adjustment changes and it makes it easier to to uh, earn your Bitcoin. So so that's kind of a built in you know sort of the game theory of Bitcoin that that would allow mining to continue to be uh, profitable and uh, would would cause other jurisdictions to jump in when it made sense. So uh, next up, Coindesk, September 9th. Uh, title of this one here is SEC Enforcement Chief. We can't ignore crypto law breaking. Enforcement Director Gerber Gruwal defended the SEC from accusations at stamping out innovation. Gerber Gruwal, Director of Enforcement at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, said his agency can't look the other way as the cryptocurrency industry violates securities laws. And by the way, before I get into this, I think we've already determined that Bitcoin is a commodity and, and not a security. Um, and that with a few exceptions, pretty much all the cryptocurrencies, all the 20 or 30,000 or however many there are on CoinMarketCap, I'll have to look that up, uh, there are, um, are all pretty much all considered securities. Uh, yeah, uh, CoinMarketCap is currently uh, showing 20,931 cryptos on 515 exchanges. So there. Uh, moving on. So Gerber Gruel, Director of Enforcement at the United States Securities and Exchange Commission, said his agency can't look the other way as the cryptocurrency industry violates securities laws. It often seems that critics are upset because we're not giving crypto a pass, Gruel said Friday at a, at a practicing law institute conference in Washington, D.C. His brief remarks focused largely on crypto. It was the only industry specifically addressed, revealing how much the agency is currently thinking about digital assets. The SEC 
needs to impartially enforce the laws on the books and ignoring them would be a betrayal of trust and that is not an option for us he said he also noted that crypto had an outsized harmful impact on low-income and non-white consumers his comments and more detailed remarks from the division's new crypto chief come on the heels of a series of remarks and interviews done by sec chair gary gensler this week Gensler also issued a strong warning to the digital assets industry that his agency would not sit idle on enforcing U.S. laws against unregistered exchanges and tokens that fail to register as securities. David Hirsch, the incoming head of the SEC's crypto enforcement effort, uh, also said at the PLI conference that registration is key in this area, particularly for issuers. The agency wants to see a culture of compliance in crypto, complete with accountants and specialized attorneys that are there to keep the well-being of their investors forefront in their minds. He said crypto platforms need to register and get robust systems in place to prevent market manipulation, wash trading, and other types of misconduct. Hearst said decentralized finance is a particular area of worry. If you have a purely pseudonymous and absolutely permissionless environment, it's hard to also be regulatorily compliant, he said, to the extent you have a very low accountability financial system. I don't know that there's great historical precedent for that being something that is either good for retail investors or has been successful over a long time horizon. Hirsch cautioned that DeFi operations need some ability to shield themselves from known fraudsters, and being entirely permissionless makes that difficult. Commissioner Mark Ueda also weighed in on what he argued was the agency's tendency to lean on enforcement instead of dealing with crypto through new rules. To the extent that crypto assets raise unique issues not else otherwise addressed in the current rule book, the commission should consider proposing rules, said Ueda, a recent addition to the commission. Ueda, a former SEC employee, once assigned to work with the Senate Banking Committee's Republican staff, hasn't previously been heard on cryptocurrency issues. Uh, so no surprises there, as we've talked about. Um, regulation is coming, and uh, it'll be really interesting to see how they deal with uh, all these tokens, because lots of people have been making a lot of money, uh, you know, uh, creating new tokens, selling them to retail, dumping uh, on retail. Um, it's, you know, it's the Wild West for... Uh, for the shit coins, as we like to call them. Okay, um, and then I'll I'll finish up a little bit um, on uh, why I hodl Bitcoin, and I think I've I've talked about this, you know, many times. I always have to remind uh, myself and the readers, you know, kind of my my. Uh, my six bullet points uh, for Bitcoin. Uh, number one, that it's absolutely scarce. There's only ever going to be 21 million coins. Um, there's really no other asset in the world that has that level of scarcity, not even gold, not even silver, uh, certainly not real estate or stocks or bonds or anything else that can be produced uh, uh, or printed or you know built. Um, it the transfers are peer-to-peer -peer without an intermediary so you can send value to anyone anywhere in the world with a computer and an internet connection um that's huge um i don't know if you've worked with banks lately 
but it seems like every time I have to deal with the bank or walk into a bank or do a wire transfer or something like that, it's just incredibly uh, painful and antiquated. Uh, the Bitcoin network operates independently of all legacy financial systems. It's the first digital global payments infrastructure. Um, there's no counterparty risk when you hold your own coins or have it in a multi-sig solution like with Unchained that I talked about last week. Um, you basically hold your own coins, but you have a partner to help bail you out if you have a problem with one of your keys. Um, but there's no counterparty risk. No one, you're not relying on an exchange that could go bankrupt and, and uh, lose your coins. It's trustless, you know, Bitcoin is not controlled by any person or group. And that's a big reason why it's been considered a commodity versus a security because there's, you know, even the Ethereum Foundation has a founder, has a board, it's run like a company. Uh, so um, it's, can't, and it's, it's governed by code. I mean, it's just, you can't change it. Uh, you can change the Bitcoin uh, code, but uh, pretty much everybody has to agree on the changes that need to be made. Therefore, that it's really difficult to make changes and certainly nobody would want to change the, for example, the maximum number of coins that would be issued that would never get approved. And then uh, finally, and, and probably most importantly, Bitcoin is a hedge against fiat currency debasement and collapse. Um, I think much in the same way that gold is, uh, I think gold bugs and Bitcoiners have a, a lot in common um, in that respect. Um, but Bitcoin doesn't have gold's drawbacks. You know, it's, it's you know, you have to validate that the gold's real. Um, you don't have that issue with Bitcoin. Um, gold is difficult to store. It's heavy. It's bulky. It's hard to transfer. You can't stick you know, a bunch of gold bricks in your pocket and jump on a plane, you know, uh, and it's difficult to secure as well, especially in large amounts. Now, if you have 10 gold coins, <clears throat> not a big deal, but if you've got a couple million dollars in gold, well, that's a whole different story. So, um, you know, I think I've done my research and um i continue to do research <laughs> i feel like the more i learn about bitcoin the the less i really know um but i but i continue uh learning and and uh, reading and, and listening to podcasts and reading books in fact i just heard about a book recently that i picked up i'm gonna hopefully read here soon it's called the book of satoshi the Collected Writings of Bitcoin Creator Satoshi Nakamoto. It's a book by uh, Phil Champagne. Um, sounds really interesting. So, um, uh, always learning, always uh, trying to, you know, evaluate my security setup. And, and, but one of the interesting things, and I heard this on a podcast the other day, is that um, one of the people, I think it was on, uh, uh, the What Is Money uh, show, um, Robert Breedlove's show. And I think he said that 
he doesn't really interact with his Bitcoin that much. And I'm starting to find find myself doing the same thing. You know, you, you just you do your buy every two weeks with your paycheck or whatever, send it to the cold storage and that's it. I mean, you don't really yeah, you look at the price every once in a while, see what's going on with the price action. But other than that, you really don't have to do anything. And so it's it's actually quite liberating because you, you know, unlike with stocks, you know, do I buy, do I sell, you know, what do I do, you know, or, or any other type of investment, uh, you can just chill and um, focus on other things like, um, I don't know, family or learning more about Bitcoin or studying Austrian economics or, or libertarianism or whatever, you know, interests you. Um, but again, just to, just to kind of put a point on this, uh, cause I think it's really important, especially since there's just a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt, uh, these days, especially, you know, given the pummeling that the Bitcoin price has taken, which, um, you know, causes a lot of people to sort of lose faith, but it's, it's not, I think, you know, to think of it as purely as an investment or a speculation is, is just absolutely wrong. You know, again, it's secure. The, this, this, there's a strong network effect, the hash rate, which to me is how you, what you really need to look at to see whether or not the Bitcoin network is functioning as it should is strong and growing which means that your Bitcoin is going to be safe because it's protected. Um, you know, and again, I own it and I can transfer it to anyone I want anywhere in the world without a bank. That's huge. That is worth to me worth putting up with the, with the volatility of the price. Uh, again, absolutely scarce. There's nothing else like it. You know, I mean, and I mean, I look at Bitcoin as like someday it could be like, like real estate, it could be very valuable. And uh, now, unlike real estate, there's no cash flow. So yeah, you could you could leverage the Bitcoin, but then you know you, you don't really have cash flow to pay it back. Um, so you have to be a little bit careful about that. But in terms of scarcity, I mean, if if there's a lot of demand for for housing in a particular area, they'll build more. You know, but with Bitcoin, there won't be any more. So, um, absolute scarcity is just to me something that's really, really important. And then, you know, again, and I can't overemphasize this: having money outside the system, you know, um, is just insurance against you know fiat debt collapse. We know our money's broken. We know that the uh, fiat system, uh, you know, is over indebted. Um, you know, we have these booms and busts all the time. Um, now do I think it's going to collapse tomorrow or next week? No. Um, could it happen in the next five or 10 years? Sure. And so, um, you know, what do you want to own if, you know, bonds become worthless, you know, um, stocks crater 80% in value, cash becomes worthless, you know, uh, probably dollars, you know, won't be, 
you know, it will probably be the last fiat currency to fail. Um, probably all the other ones will have to go first. Um, and certainly for right now, I'd be holding on to a bit of cash because, you know, you want to be able to take advantage of opportunities. You also want to have enough money to pay your bills and have your emergencies covered. Um, uh, but, but I put all my savings into Bitcoin and, and um, I really haven't invested in much else lately. Although I do still like real estate, although I wouldn't buy an investment property now, but I think real estate is, is a good way to build wealth as long as, uh, you know, at least in the United States, it's been, it's been pretty good. Other countries too, I'm sure. Uh, you just don't want to be buying at the top, you know, and if you do, you should know that you are and know that you're going to stay put. In fact, I talk about that. Uh, in my blog post this week, which I didn't talk about in the podcast, it's about real estate market update, but I'll put a link in the show notes if you're interested in, in reading about that. Um, yeah, I bought my house in 2006. I knew it was the top of the market, but I'm like, well, I can afford the payment. My family needs this place. We're going to be happy here and we're not moving. And um, sure enough, the market collapsed. Um, but, you know, and it took like nine years to recover. But, um, you know, you, you need a place to live. You know, unfortunately, you can't live in Bitcoin. You can't live in gold. Um, so you do need to have a home. And, you know, I generally think it's better to own than to rent. Um, but, you know, in terms of things I see value in right now, I mean, I think gold and silver are great prices. Gold miners, great prices. Um, Bitcoin's at a great price right now. Uh, you know, real estate coming down. Um, but again, I would, you know, if you need to buy a house, buy a house but and stay put. But, uh, you know, in terms of investment property, uh, the numbers really have to work. Um, but coming back to, to Bitcoin, why HODL? I mean, those are all really the reasons um, why I have conviction and why, you know, um, you know, I just save it, put it away, forget about it. And, uh, that's the best thing you can do. And, you know, just tune out the noise cause there's, there's a lot of noise and I think it's, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Probably when Ethereum, if Ethereum doesn't completely fail when it converts to proof of stake, There'll be a whole new um, energy FUD, you know, about, oh, look at how little energy, you know, proof of stake consumes. And, you know, proof of stake is no different than the fiat currency system we have today. You know, that whoever is able to hoard the most Ethereum will get to validate transactions and will get to collect rent, you know, and that's, and by the way, there's no maximum amount of coins, even though they say it's deflationary. They could change it at any time. And so that, those are, in my mind, non-starters. That's why I sold all my Ethereum and I only own Bitcoin now and I only will own Bitcoin from now on as far as digital assets goes. <clears throat> so anyway, uh, that should wrap it up for this week. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please like and leave a comment. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. You can also 
follow my Substack at bitcoinfortress.substack.com. And you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Nick Reichert. I will talk to you next week. Bye-bye.